Welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast, which stands our socialist feminist state senator, Julia Salazar. Ah. Yay! <laughs> today we have Laura, Hope, Zoe, and Ambria. And today we are very excited to have an interview with Julia Salazar, New York State Senator. Welcome, Julia. Thank you so, so, so much for being here with us. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Like, I would just have to say before we even get started that so we have a Slack channel for our um, podcast, and I think like the majority of our conversation for about the last several months has kind of been around like or like dipping back into the fact that we would be talking to you and how excited we were about that. So very, very happy to have you on the call with us this morning. Thank you. I'm absolutely thrilled. This is in my podcast lineup. Um, I was I actually was just listening earlier to Thursday's episode with um, on, on the teacher strike. So oh my God. yeah, I, I really am. I really am honored. What? <laughs> I'm crying a little bit. I've got tears rolling down my cheeks. Uh, and they wept. Trying not to freak out. Continuing on. Here we go. So follow the script. Follow the <laughs> if 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 you have been living under a rock and don't know, uh, Julia ran a campaign for the people and is now representing District 18, which encompasses several neighborhoods in North Brooklyn, including where Zoe lives. Yay! Um, and so she's representing all that uh, in Albany. So. Before we get into some more of the questioning, is there anything else you'd like to share about yourself, about kind of like what you want people to know about you? (laughs) Yeah, um, sure. So um, we'll probably maybe we'll cover this, but um, I I live in Bushwick, um, which is a neighborhood that I represent the entirety of um, and then also representing Williamsburg, um, half of Greenpoint. Cypress Hills, all of these neighborhoods in North Brooklyn. Um, I'm the youngest woman to ever be elected to the New York State Senate. Yes. I, <laughs> I just turned 28 years old. Oh, my um, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and I'm chair of the brand new standing committee on women's issues, which I'm, I'm absolutely ecstatic about. Oh, my um, God. Yeah. I... I'm also 28 and I'm just like, what is what? <laughs> <laughs> no, it astonishes me as well. It's so cool. I'm now older than a senator. It's <laughs> <laughs> very cool. The progression of life. <laughs> so um, what made you decide to run for office? So I was um, a community organizer, a full-time community organizer before I ran. Um, additionally, Two and a half years ago, in the summer of 2016, I, um, in a volunteer capacity, I was involved in the campaign to elect uh, a woman named Debbie Medina to the New York State Senate in my district. Um, she also was challenging Senator DeLon at the time. Uh, she she was this, you know, badass tenant organizer, um, uh, you know, fierce Latina candidate, and... I was really inspired by her campaign. Um, ultimately, 
Um, obviously, it, it was not, it wasn't successful. She didn't win, but um, it, it, she ran also openly as a democratic socialist. That's an important component. Um, and that, that campaign um, really got me engaged in local electoral politics. Um, and at the time I was, I was an active DSA member and over the course of the two years that followed until early last year, um, I was both doing my organizing work around criminal legal reform um, and police accountability at the city and state level and uh, doing work within DSA, specifically the Socialist Feminist Working Group and the Electoral Working Group. Mm. And it was early last year that a friend of mine who is a district leader in within my district um, sent me a, you know, texted me while I was on the train platform. And he said, someone needs to run against Delon. And I said, yeah, someone needs to run against Delon. And he's like, you're not getting it. <laughs> you're not picking up what I'm putting down. And, <laughs> and, I, and I was like, oh, what a strange text, you know. Um, and the following weekend, he came over to my house while I was doing laundry. And he sat down with me and he made the case for, for the race. And I said, look, this is not a hard sell. I'm, I think this is really important. I think that... Uh, the community has demonstrated for years that they they want someone who's more accountable and present than Senator Delon, and you know I think I think we got to do it. And then he, and then he said, "Well, you're the candidate," and I said, "Hard no." You're like dummy. What? I said, "Nope, nope, nope, nope." Um, but I but I was I'm flattered, I suppose, and and a little shocked. And I thought, okay, it's time to find. A candidate, and by the way, this was late January. Mm. So, and and the the primary would be September of the same year, uh, which really meant we we needed we had, I had like a couple months probably to come up with a candidate, or else we were not going. Otherwise, as far as I knew, no one was going to challenge Senator Delon. Um, so I talked to more people um, in the community and in DSA, um, and both. Um, uh, and over the course of a couple months, um, through more people urging me to to do it, to step up, um, and through uh, some revelation with my my colleagues who I was organizing with, we went on a retreat, and everyone was lamenting, saying, "Oh, you know, we had just come out of this um, this like five year campaign that was pretty much it was victorious, um, a little complicated, but victorious, um, a legislative campaign and." And we were kind of evaluating and we said like, oh man, if only we had one of our own on the inside, you know, and I'm just like, oh, okay, you know, yes. fine. <laughs> yeah. So, so I came back to, to Brooklyn and, and said very reluctantly, I will run. But, but because I knew that, um, I would have this, this movement behind me, um, and, and that, that, that we would run, you know, a really, we would really run a campaign with integrity, um, and and fighting for to to also um, I think elevate all of the the issues that were impacting the community and what people have been fighting for for a long time. That's amazing. Um, so so incredible. I love that story. Thank you. <laughs> um, and I think that kind of like leads in really well to the next thing that we were curious about, which is if you could kind of describe 
more about your campaign. So what was the th- thought process thought processes that went into um, the different decisions that you made during your campaign? Um, what do you think shaped how your campaign was run, essentially? Sure. Um, initially, and, and honestly, at, at some points throughout, it was a little bit haphazard. Um, <laughs> you know, given that I, I um, d- determined that, yes, I, you know, reluctantly will run in March and then by April needed to publicly announce, um, I, um, I had this, I had an incredible campaign manager, Tasha Van Auken, um, and uh, deputy campaign manager, Michael Knukin. Um, we, we were able to um, gather a pretty big group of volunteers, uh, many DSA members, many, many totally new to DSA um, and just from, from the community. Um, uh, and, and with, with that support, it was relatively easy for us to uh, begin canvassing and doing outreach um, pretty early on. But as far as constructing a platform, um, from from my experience, one of the most important principles of of organizing and fighting for social change is naturally to um, empower the people who are directly impacted by whatever it is you're trying to change um, to really to lead that change, to lead the campaign. Um, and and also to what what that means is not just visibility, but actually having a direct stake um, and and ultimately input uh, to in in shaping it. Right. So for for example, in seeking to create a, a socialist feminist labor platform, mm. that meant talking to um, caregivers, caregiver organizers people such as um, those in the Caring Majority Coalition, uh, talking to DSA's labor branch, to rank-and-file union members about what our priorities should be, um, and that's what built our labor platform, for example. Um, and and so really, I think throughout the campaign, a theme was people who are directly impacted should be, um, you know, should have input, should be leading, but additionally, should be running for office um, as like a, you know, somebody with with working class experience. Um, I began working when I was fourteen in a grocery store, then worked in the service industry and restaurants um, as a domestic worker, as a nanny, cleaning apartments, um, etc. And um, that was that was another thing that was I think unique about this campaign is, you know, like last year for example, I made about fifty one thousand dollars, right? Um, in, in my full-time salary, which, you know, depending on where someone listening is in the country, that might sound like a, like a totally reasonable (laughs) amount of money, um, in North Brooklyn, that's like a pretty modest salary to, to live on. Right. Um, and that's just to say that, um, you know, having to take an unpaid leave from my job to run for office was a really, really difficult decision. That was that was definitely one of the barriers to me running. Um, and no doubt, if I had, if I, you know, in in North Brooklyn, the um, average household income is about forty four thousand dollars a year, and that's a household, right? So often there are families trying to live on 
less than I was earning. And even, even as somebody who often was, you know, paycheck to paycheck. Um, so all, all that is to say that, um, because of, of economic and socioeconomic barriers, there are very few people who, um, are able to have the privilege to run for office and right. rarely, rarely are they, you know, 27 year old Latinas. Um, mm. yeah. So, so that was something that was, that was unique about the campaign and trying to, to talk about that and explain that, um, you know, we need to, we need publicly financed elections. We need, you know, the things that we're fighting for are, are directly related. Um, and, and, uh, the effects of them are, are visible, um, in a grassroots campaign. Mm. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I moved to New York in June and specifically to Bushwick and your photos, the posters were everywhere. Like the, my like corner bodega, like on the door was like your picture. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was a strange thing for me to experience for sure. <laughs> I'm sure. Uh-huh. Um, you kind of touched on this a little bit in talking about your campaign, but um, specifically you met and organized with sex workers, um, which is pretty unheard of for politicians to do. Um, what was that process like and how did that shape the policies that you have around sex work? Definitely. Um, so I had previously been, I would say, you know, at least I just had a basic familiarity with, um, with sex workers movement, um, sex workers fighting for, for rights and, and to be recognized as workers. But it was in the middle of, of the campaign, um, in the middle of the summer that, um, someone from the sex workers project contacted me. Um, I think they had, they had been involved in Siraj Patel's campaign. Siraj Patel ran against Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney, um, in a neighboring district. Um, uh, and he had come out in support of, um, not decriminalization, but, um, but, uh, or yes, I think he came out in, in support of de- decriminalization. Um, but either way, a lot of a lot of sex workers were involved in his campaign because he was willing to take uh, that bold stance. And although although he didn't win, um, I mean that was a really you know that was a challenging campaign. It was a congressional race, um, and although he didn't win, they I think were really encouraged by that, and they came to me and said like, "Is this something that you would want to take up?" And for me, I didn't have to think about it at all. I just thought, you know, yeah, of course, this is, this is a criminal justice issue. This is a feminist issue for sure. And, um, and it's a labor issue. Mm -hmm. Uh, and what they, you know, they, they still continued to, to educate me, uh, about more of the, the specifics. Um, for example, one of their, their top demand, I'd, I'd even say, um, legislatively is, to repeal the loitering for the purpose of prostitution statute. Mm. Um, this is a statute that um, it's it's a charge that affects um, two neighborhoods in my district more than any neighborhoods in the state of New York, and that's Bushwick and Bushwick and East New York. We see more arrests every year for this charge, loitering for the purpose of prostitution, than in any other neighborhoods. Um, 94% of those arrests are black women. Mm. Many are trans and gender nonconforming. Um, and, uh, it's just, it's just a blatantly discriminatory law. So I was, um, I was very eager to, 
add, you know, re repealing that to my platform, um, among other, among other demands seeking, you know, ultimately full decriminalization. Amazing. Wonderful. Um, I'm really glad that we see this more and more, and I hope we continue to. Um, the New York legislature also just passed historic voting rights for the state. What do you hope this means for primary voting and for the general election in 2020? I, um, first of all, I'm, I'm really excited about these voting reforms. I think we still have more work to do, particularly um, I regret that this early in the session, I hope I hope we can later in the session, but that this early in in the session, we didn't, the voting reforms didn't include um, restoring the voting rights of parolees, uh, codifying that. Um, that's a, you know, just really important criminal justice issue. So many people are disenfranchised just because they're, they're formerly incarcerated. Uh, but nonetheless, um, the other voting reforms, early voting, for example, um, pre-registration for 16 and 17 year olds, I think is, is really key for more young people to actually engage in, in the electoral process. And through that, the, the legislative process, um, all of these things are really good for, for a democratic society. Um, and I'm hoping that in it, it will it will um, increase turnout even more in 2020. One thing I was really proud of in our campaign um, this past year in, in the primary, not only in my district, but in districts all over the state, people were people were actually paying attention to not only statewide races, the governor's race, um, but but who their state senator was and who their assembly member was. Um, and. And that's something that I had not really seen in, in the past. Um, I think that people were were far more civically engaged. And we we actually saw an, an enormous increase in turnout. Um, compared to other states, New York has had an embarrassingly low turnout in, in local and state elections. So we still have a long way to go. But in the 18th district, for example, in our in our Senate district, we saw the highest increase increase in turnout of any district in the state. And yes. it was an increase of about 280%. Yes. So, yeah. So um, all the, you know, the knocking on over 100,000 doors, all of the, you know, just blood, sweat and tears that went into this, um, mostly, mostly from volunteers, uh, it really paid off. Um, and I can only imagine that uh, we'll see an even bigger impact without these institutional, you know, systemic barriers to people being able to vote. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned a little in your little intro that you're now the head of the Committee on Women's Health. Um, and this past week, you already passed your first bill, the CCCA, the Comprehensive Contraceptive Coverage Act. Ooh, um, ooh, ooh, ooh. <laughs> yeah, which not along with Fireworks. the... <laughs> with the RHA and the boss bill. So that was an exciting week. How did how did you come about being the head of that committee? And what are other things that you want to do with that? Yeah, um, truthfully, I definitely I couldn't have known that I would be not only that I would chair that committee, but that I would even be on the committee because it was it was recently created by uh, the majority leader and um, by by leadership in the Senate. Um, we uh, for for those who don't know, um, we now have a majority leader, um, a, the Democratic Conference leader in the state Senate, who is a woman, for the first time in the history of the state. And at that, she's she's you know 
breaking um, multiple ceilings, you could say, um, because she's also a black woman, uh, Senator Andrea Stewart Cousins. Um, and and Senator Stewart Cousins really, um, I think she she wanted to empower all of the new members to work on issues that we really care about. And she created this, this um, women's health, initially a subcommittee, and now it's a, a standing committee. Um, she created this committee and she asked me if I, if I want to chair it. And I was really, I was absolutely honored. Um, and I'm, I think what I'm really excited about is, is that because it's a brand new committee, um, and because <laughs> the vast majority of, of social justice issues of, of, so, of social issues, um, you know, disproportionately impact women. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, you know, I'm excited to kind of define the purview, a broad purview of this committee. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, use it to not only pass the CCCA, but talk about, um, you know, many, many other issues be- far beyond uh, reproductive justice, even though obviously that's been a top priority. Um, but, but talk about other issues, anything from, from climate justice to labor rights um, to to fully funding our public schools as uh, through through a feminist lens. Yeah, it's very exciting as a woman to f- know that there are um, women leading the way in our health for a change. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> yeah, such a novel yeah. idea. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, oh, there's people that I actually like agree with and trust what they would do with that. How how crazy to have that in politics. Wild. <laughs> yeah Uh, that makes me think of a question that just because this has come up a lot in organizing for me um being involved with a lot of like socialist feminist stuff um but sometimes feeling conflicted because I there are proportionally fewer women doing that kind of organizing socialist organizing in general and then not wanting to just focus on feminist issues Mm. um and so sometimes like I I go back and forth about that and I wonder if like you, you have to think about like, okay, I'm going to do this committee on women's health, but there are other issues I also want to work on, or we want to make sure that the women aren't all just working on women's health issues as kind of like an auxiliary of the rest of the state Senate. Absolutely. And that's something that I was concerned initially about um, the, the committee being created as a subcommittee. I thought, you know, I thought, well, on the one hand, it's absurd that there's never been a committee at the state level um, that just focuses on women's issues. And then on the other hand, I thought, well, now it's the subcommittee. It's sort of like, um, hopefully not intentional, but, but symbolic of uh, how we, we relegate women's issues to this lower position and lower priority. Um, and so I naturally that I, I feel differently about it becoming a standing committee. Um, at the same time, I'm, I'm conscious of this potential for, for, um, us to then treat certain issues like reproductive rights, um, like, uh, I think issues that, that affect a workforce such as home care, um, Mm -hmm. or, or education that are mostly women and just like focus on, on those things as, that are that are obviously affecting women um and then and then neglect to define this as no you know all of again so like all of these social issues directly impact women um i think 
uh, one part of my my analysis on this, I guess, um, comes from the working within the Socialist Feminist Working Group of New York City DSA um, and how they or we um, prioritized the New York Health Act, the Medicare for All, the fight for mm-hmm. for universal health care for single payer health care, um, and and you know repeatedly. Um, spoke about how this this is a feminist issue, right? Um, and and so I think I'm I'm glad that I, I'm bringing that analysis to to the committee. Um, as far as so that's my chairmanship, but I'm also going to be on the housing committee, which I'm I'm absolutely thrilled about. Um, as you, you probably know, um, it was the really the focus of my campaign was the affordable housing crisis and universal rent control. Um, and I'll be a member of the, the social services committee, the elections committee, um, and, uh, the environmental conservation committee as well. So I'm excited to, to get to work. That's amazing. And I also like, as a side note, I think that it would be nice to have more men working on things like the, you know, committee for women's health or like not leading necessarily, but participating in, in organizing and politics that's targeted at helping women so that it's not just always the case that it's all women having to do all of that work for themselves to essentially like fight the bullshit that other men have been putting on them (laughs) yeah yeah absolutely like we're not going to be able to to change it um and fight the patriarchy if we're just siloed off um you know like like a club or something yeah (laughs) so i totally i totally agree it's both comforting and distressing that you struggle at the state senate level with the same things we do at like Milwaukee DSA. But <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. to talk about. <laughs> yeah, it's it's just like Milwaukee DSA. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, um, just touching back on the the fair rent in New York um, issue, which we know is really huge. We were just wondering what is kind of like the legislative approach for that more broadly? What's the grassroots approach and like, how has that been going and been received? Yeah. Um, so at the beginning of, of our campaign, well, actually to go, to go further back, um, uh, the senator who I challenged, Senator DeLon, um, it had been a, a longtime entrenched incumbent. He'd been in the state Senate for 16 years. And before that, he'd been the city council. Um, his, his son is my assembly member um, still. <laughs> and he, um, which is a little awkward, um, but he, he uh, had, you know, Senator Delon had taken more, more money from real estate than any other uh, member of the democratic conference um, than almost any, anyone else in the Senate. And, uh, the the result was that he was not a strong advocate for tenants, to say the least. Um, and the you know this community had for years been agitating him and and trying to demand that that he change, um, but without success. And that was part of what motivated our campaign. Um, and early on, we knew that we wanted to see every tenant, not only in New York City, but across the state uh, and, you know, finally be protected from displacement and eviction. Um, it's, it's definitely something that because of harmful rezonings um, of the, the early 2000s um, and, and the effects of gentrification, it's really 
hurt North Brooklyn, like the, the effects of um, <clears throat> the, the negative impacts of deregulatory policies um, and rent laws that work for developers and landlords at the expense of tenants, um, the, the negative impact has, has just been uh, particularly evident in our neighborhoods. So anyway, um, the, the demand for universal rent control came from the grassroots. Um, and it's not some, it's, it's also, it's language that sounded really radical and perhaps, perhaps is, which is a wonderful thing. Um, but, uh, so, so, you know, we it demanded a lot of political education, um, on the ground at doors, you know, what do we mean by universal rent control? Well, it's, it's several different policies. It's ending something called vacancy decontrol that incentivizes landlords to evict tenants um, or or to harass them into leaving. Mm. Um, uh, something called a vacancy bonus, which has a, a similar effect. It's also known as the eviction bonus. Um, there are there's a, a law that allows landlords to permanently increase rent uh, if they if they make improvements to the building. So it fall, the burden of that falls on the tenants. Um, all of these are policies that are, you know, ending these policies are part of a universal rent control platform. But then there's, um, a couple of, of more, uh, positively oriented, uh, um, policies that are part of it. One of them is fighting for, uh, good cause evictions. And that's legislation that I will be introducing very soon. Um, I think in the next week that would, um, give tenants who are currently outside of the rent regulated system a right to a renewal lease uh, and would demand that landlords actually legally prove good cause um, for for not offering someone a renewal lease and that will hopefully uh, allow far more tenants and families to stay in their homes mm. so um, that that's like <clears throat> excuse me the all of these policies are are definitely the the legislative component, um, but what I've what I've witnessed in the last year that's really really inspiring is that the housing justice movement has uh, there's more cohesiveness statewide, which is really powerful, and I'm the the coalition is is stronger. People are more unified than I've ever seen them before, and I think the fact that we're actually taught even even the governor. Um, is talking about ending these deregulatory policies is really is really a reflection of the organizing that people have done on the ground. That's awesome. What is the thing you're most excited about with this new position? Ooh, um, <laughs> just a very broad question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what am I most excited about? Um, you know, <laughs> I. Um, I've had so in the last couple of weeks, I've had the opportunity to um, speak on the Senate floor, right, and mm -hmm. explaining explaining my votes. Um, uh, you know, for for anyone for anyone who's watching, um, you know, and and re recorded on on the Senate website, and it's it's this opportunity, even as a freshman senator, um, as the the most junior senator, if that if that is a thing. <laughs> um, Yes. Uh, it's an opportunity for me to to get up and say, you know, what we're doing, and what what we're doing with, for example, passing the RHA, um, passing my own bill, the the CCCA. Um, it's really important. We have to do it. Um, I'm voting, you know, proudly voting yes. However, 
we need universal health care. We need yes. single payer health care. And to be able to say that on the floor of the New York State Senate, mm. um, to, to in explaining my vote for the DREAM Act, say, yes, we need this. Finally, we're doing it. But it's not enough. Um, yes. Our, you know, we need to we need to extend full rights to our undocumented neighbors um, yes. and say these things, you know, looking at all of the Republicans, you know, staring at me, yes. um, at me. <laughs> You know, um, to to be able to stand up and and confront that and speak truth to power and be unapologetically a democratic socialist on the floor of the state Senate. Mm -hmm. Um, I think overall, that's what um, I'm really excited about that. Uh, Certainly, I want to actually have a material impact. And that's why, you know, I'm proud that we just passed the CCCA. um, And I want to, you know, fight for things that are more controversial, like the good cause evictions legislation will be more challenging, mm-hmm. um, fighting to, you know, for tax reform and to, to, um, you know, make sure that the wealthy are paying their share of taxes. You know, these things are, are not as palatable for, for some of my colleagues. Um, and so, so the, you know, we, we definitely have, I have my work cut out for me and there's, there's a fight ahead, but I'm really, I'm just really excited. Um, being in Albany right now, the energy is completely different than it was in previous years. When I was, when I was a legislative advocate, um, you know, up until I ran, really, uh, going going up to Albany was it was often kind of bleak. And now totally. being there, yeah, now being there, the balcony um, is always filled with advocates. Uh, people are are like swarming the Capitol because um, they they feel invested in this for the first time, and it's. It's very, I'm, I'm really honored to be a part of it. I just hope more and more women get the opportunity to be scowled at directly yes. by Republican men. <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah. Well, and I think, um, and I don't know, I this I think is like a pretty unique thing to New York State that people might not know about. But um, up until this election, this most recent election, um, New York State had something called the Independent Democratic Caucus, <laughs> which essentially was a group of Democrats Ew. that voted as with the Republicans on a lot of things. Um, uh, excuse? Yeah. It was like a... It's just like an old white man's club. Yeah. it's uh, mm-hmm. It was essentially a way to still get elected because in New York State... Um, Democrats are just more likely to get elected, but also like continue their like really backwards policy making. And like Cuomo fucking knowingly supported all of this shit. But anyway, I think also part of that shift I'm assuming in Albany is related to the fact that (laughs) there isn't this like massive stopping block in a lot of ways for Um, legislation being passed because I think for a long time grassroots organizers felt really at least myself I'll speak for myself I felt very (laughs) frustrated um, going to Albany or trying to work on any campaigns to get anything passed because this IDC like just made everything feel so useless like and really really challenging to to organize past yeah Absolutely. Um, it, it felt for me, and I, I think a lot of advocates shared your frustration, um, and myself included, it was, it was, it felt futile to go to Albany because, uh, to fight 
fight to pass most legislation or any legislation, like any progressive legislation worth mm-hmm. doing that would actually transform people's lives because, uh, the you know, we had always say, well, it's going to die in the Senate. It's never going to even make it to the floor because of exactly what you're what you're speaking to the um, the IDC. Uh, creating this power sharing agreement with the Republicans. So the Republicans were controlling the Senate and um, absolutely uh, Cuomo was complicit in that. Um, it also for years prevented uh, our the majority leader, Senator Stuart Cousins, from being able to, to be the first woman and first black woman to lead the Senate. So it was just like the, mm-hmm. the existence of the IDC was deeply offensive. Yes. Um, but a couple, you know, a couple years ago, most most New Yorkers, I would I would argue, had no idea what the IDC is, mm. and reasonably so. Um, you know, I understand people like even though even though I'm totally immersed in and obsessed with politics, um, you know, every day, you know, you, uh, it's it's time consuming. It makes sense that that without without comprehensive political education, people aren't thinking about this. Um, and so this campaign um, called No IDC and Why. Is is really what changed that? Uh, a couple years ago, they they were already thinking about 2018 elections, and and they launched this. Really, I would say, uh, not only were they um, scouting, seeking candidates to run against the members of the IDC who betrayed their constituents by caucusing with the Republicans, um, you know, running running more running people um, all universally to the left of of these eight. IDC members, um, but also doing this this really strong political education campaign and telling and and making sure that the public was talking about the IDC. And Cynthia Nixon actually mm-hmm. she she did this well throughout her campaign. She talked about the IDC at every opportunity. Um, and then of of course you know she she didn't defeat Cuomo, but I think that it really boosted the campaigns of these other other IDC members who now I'm I'm thrilled to call my colleagues. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, with the new wave of millennial politicians kind of in 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 all bodies, both federal and state, there's been like a larger conversation about transparency or the lack of transparency in our governmental bodies since like being on board or even since being elected has anything been surprising about the like that whole the process of taking office? Oh yeah. Um <laughs> You know, I think it's it it's been challenging because this is the first time that the the Democrats that our conference has uh, been in the majority um, in gosh like nearly a decade, um, and the the result is is that the the transition of leadership from the Republicans was I think less than graceful um, inevitably. Mm-hmm. Um, for you know, a lot, of us, a lot of us have not been paid yet. For example, mm-hmm. um, and it's late January. Um, you know, the some of the challenges that um, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez spoke about when she was transitioning to being a member of Congress, the like serious financial challenges and yeah. and the additional yeah. additional barriers to normal people. Uh, being being able to to even get elected is once you're elected. Um, there, there are all these challenges presented by a big leadership transition. So one, yeah, one thing I was surprised by was, was I don't, I, I mean, I, I wouldn't say a lack of support. That's like, you know, the, the fault of, of leadership, but just that it's, 
it's um it's like it's a little it's a little opaque and disorganized sometimes um you know the one thing i i say is like the the older i get I the more I realize that everyone is just winging it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, you know, um, and I actually um, I think that's 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 a little bit comforting uh, for the for the times when you kind of have to um, uh, project more confidence than you feel <laughs> in what you're doing, um, or or at least I do to speak for myself. Um, yeah, for sure. But um, yeah, so so I think. Uh, that's something that has, that has surprised me. Um, and I've also, I've been su- pleasantly surprised, um, by how, how quickly we have, I think those of us, um, on who, who, especially the primary challengers, um, who just won our elections, you know, m- many of us are, are pretty young. The average age of the state Senate has been skewed downward um, as a result of these elections. Um, we were really able to uh, build close relationships um, with each other. And, and so, you know, that's it, it's basically been interesting for me to see uh, state legislators as normal people mm-hmm. instead of people who I am I am um, just antagonizing uh, as as, as an advocate. I think more and more we're in a time where these myths about people in power are just crumbling, you know, these narratives that they're way more skilled than us or way more intelligent and educated. And like, I think, you know, that they're set apart somehow and they're more deserving of, you know, the role of ruling. Um, And, you know, it's funny, I saw even somebody said on Twitter, like, (laughs) the one thing that's been good about Twitter um, is that (laughs) it really has shown us that, like, these powerful people or, like, elite people that are in the spotlight are not more intelligent than everyone else. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Yeah. they've, they've, you know, tweeted, sent, sent the tweet and removed all <laughs> doubt, you know? <laughs> yes. Thank you for tweeting. Yeah. <laughs> There's also this like weird knee jerk reaction when like more quote unquote regular people do get elected where the media is like, this person's not as regular as they're pretending to be, which is really interesting reaction to the same phenomenon. I think. <laughs> yeah. I, th- I think Julian knows some about that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Awesome. Um, campaigning. Yeah. That coat doesn't look like a girl who struggles. That was the uh, good, one of the good AOC ones. Yeah, we've we've gained a lot of memes from the from the rights. I, I think um, sort of sort of ridiculous attacks <laughs> on um, on leftist candidates, especially on women. Well, but yeah. it's not even it's not even all the right. I mean, I I'm yeah, never totally, one to take credit away from the right for being terrible. But it's also in like you know New York Times or more right. kind of like mainstream Lim. like journalism sources that right. will be very quick to pick people apart. Absolutely, yeah. And truthfully, I think that that in many cases it's a betrayal of their of their class interests, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that and and that's I'm I'm glad for that, uh, you know, that we're not, I think increasingly people are understanding that the, the left is not just this, this, um, you know, 
just a big tent that that includes you know and you know everyone from a neoliberal to a socialist uh but instead there are like really serious um clashes of interest between uh the the new york times editorial board um and the you know the a some a democratic socialist um and and what we're fighting the kind of social change we're fighting for is like you know either reforms you know like obama-esque reforms or or systemic change right (laughs) fundamentally like saying no we we actually want to overthrow capitalism um and and so i think anyway i think that some of these critiques from liberals of leftists uh you know serve to to elucidate that difference well, and I think it just like it lays bare in a lot of ways, like the myths of meritocracy or like the bootstraps ideology, because I think for so long, anything in politics was like a very much like pay your dues type um, rhetoric. And I think that like you earn your way up through like doing these different things. And I think seeing um like the small pieces of our democracy that still actually function as a democracy working in favor of working class people and against these systemic um, levels of oppression has been really interesting and also probably very threatening to people who have just kind of like coasted by on this like rhetoric of, oh, I've paid my dues. I can do this. So, you know, like we saw that in, in a lot in all of these like progressive changeover seats. Um And like a lot of these like older white men feeling dumbfounded that they lost (laughs) to like a young woman of color or whatever. Like it, it's, um, I think that in a, it's, it's proving to help demystify a lot of those preconceived notions that, that I think, um, a lot of people who have been active in the political system have taken for granted. Um, because I think we're at a time when people are really ready to be like, actually, fuck that. Like, we're not going to deal with that anymore. And you haven't been you haven't been representing us for a very long time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, it's remarkable to actually see it happen. <laughs> yeah. Um, so. I know that you and you spoke about this a little bit. You just passed your first bill, um, which I'm sure you're extremely Yay! proud of. Um, I was curious if you wanted to explain a little bit more um, about what the Comprehensive Contraceptive Coverage Act is and what it will change for um, people in New York State. Definitely. So, um, you know, as just a foundation, what it what the CCCA does is it codifies some um, all of the um, protections of the ACA uh, of the Affordable Care Act, uh, especially in this federal political moment with um, the Trump administration uh, threatening to to repeal the ACA um, and continue to attack the social safety net. Uh, it was important that we at least codify um, protections that the ACA um, affords for for those with insurance and covered by Medicaid, right? Um, and that, of course, immediately, as a socialist, speaks to the limits of, of it, that it's not, you know, it, um, it does not 
expand access for people who are uninsured in New York, unfortunately. Um, again, the, the importance of passing single-payer legislation, um, it's, it's urgent. But what the CCCA does is it um, makes sure that all of the FDA-approved forms of contraception, which is 18 different forms of contraception, are um, covered by any any insurance company and by Medicaid without cost sharing, so no copays. So any any insured person, including um, uh, anyone on Medicaid, can um, go to the doctor, get a prescription for um, for any kind of birth control, and um, and and go and and pick it up without having to pay a copay. Uh, additionally. It demands that, um, or rather, it codifies that a provider can prescribe up to a 12-month supply of any of these FDA-approved contraception uh, forms at at one time. Which, um, you know, I, as someone, for example, who who t- has for a long time taken oral contraception, taken birth control pills, mm-hmm. um, I know how dist- and and I've <laughs> gone through multiple insurance plans. Um, due to financial precarity um, in my young adult life. And um, I know how challenging it is um, to to not to, to only to have to go back to the pharmacy every month and risk, you know, uh, having a, a lapse between um, like a, a lapse in your birth control, right? Yeah. Um, uh, in, in being able to take it. Um, it's it's just it's just common sense, right, that we would, that we would um, allow doctors and medical professionals to do to do their jobs, and um, uh, another component of the bill is that it makes sure that um, anybody who seeks uh, counseling or follow up related to the contraception they were prescribed um, that that those follow ups are also uh, completely covered by insurance without cost sharing. So mm-hmm. it won't bar people, you know, who who might say, you know, I. I I'm having issues with my um, with my IUD, and um, but I can't afford to go back to the doctor. You know that's a serious health concern, um, and and under this legislation, which is goes into effect next January, um, people won't have to worry about that anymore. Um, so I, I even you know this is going to make sh- really expand access to contraception for many many New Yorkers. Um, uh, you know, breaking down at least one other financial barrier to getting the care that we need. Um, but even when I spoke, um, and explained my, my yes vote in favor of my own bill on the floor, I was, I actually was critical of it. And, and as I mentioned before, I said, you know, we, we need single payer healthcare. Um, this is, this isn't enough, but it's definitely, um, it's progress. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. So this is one of my favorite questions to ask guests that we have on the podcast. Um, I was wondering if you have any advice for other very young or maybe inexperienced people listening who might be considering running for office. And are there things somebody you there, there are things you wish someone had told you? Oh, definitely. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, this was a very unique state senate campaign. Um, at the at the outset of it. Uh, we so we didn't hire any professional consultants, which I'm proud of. Um, on the on the one hand, it was a truly grassroots campaign. We didn't take any corporate money. We didn't take any real estate money at all. Um, 
and we were able to run a really strong and viable campaign because of the the many volunteers and um, and because it was we were accountable to to the movement to the community. Um, that I think just generally as a principle, I would recommend to anyone who's running for office, um, and and hopefully that's a, a given. I think it should be a given for um, any leftist seeking seeking to run. Um, but I think y- you know. I couldn't have known <laughs> the effect that the that um, that the Congresswoman um, Ocasio Cortez that her victory would have um, on on just civic engagement in the city, and that it would the immediate effect that it would have actually on my own race. That mm-hmm. suddenly people were um, really, really scrutinizing um, and and closely following this this humble state Senate campaign, um, overnight in, in June after her primary. Um, if I had known that this campaign was going to receive international press and, and that, right. Absurd. Um, like this, this little state Senate campaign, if I had known that, um, that we would receive this much press attention, um, and that it would be this intense, I think I just would have I think I just would have prepared more in general. I think I would have um, would have like really been deliberate um, and definitive about all of our messaging um, to you know to protect from from the potential scrutiny um, that again, even even people who were who were critical of me during my campaign were saying like. A you know we've never seen this much attention given to a state senate race like this is just totally unprecedented. Mm. Um, so I think if I had an, I think it's good for anyone running for office to anticipate that, um, and and at at best maybe you won't have to. It's like maybe you won't have to worry about it at all. But to anticipate it would have would have saved me um, like a lot of pain. <laughs> but um, I think. And on the flip side of that, what I would say to people is that um, if I can do it, you can do it. You know, <laughs> um, it was really it was it was just an arduous campaign to go through for me personally. Um, and when I when I first ran, one of the concerns that I expressed to, to my friends who were urging me to run was I said, I have I don't think I can do it because I have a thin skin. And little did I know, you know, that that. I was going to, you know, face a really challenging campaign and come out of it much, much stronger. Um, I, I still feel sometimes like I have a little bit of a thin skin, but it's it's become much thicker through <laughs> this this campaign. Um, so, yeah, I think the, the two pieces of advice really are, um, you know, run a campaign with integrity. Um, you, you know, don't, don't take corporate money. Don't take real estate money. You don't need it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, previous wisdom has been, oh, you know, it's especially actually from women of color, um, thinking, well, it's so it's home much harder for me. You know, I, I'm not part of the white boys club. So it's really I, I can't just organically like raise an enormous amount of money from my professional network or whatever. Um, so I have to take my you know, I, I can't be picky about where I take money from. Like this is something that people still say. And I recognize their their concerns. But um, you know, we, we outraised our opponent and, and in, in just small dollar donations, you know, you can, 
you can do it. And now I think the movement is ready to do that for candidates who um, are, are willing to make that commitment. So I would definitely I would definitely uh, recommend it. Mm. And and anyone who, you know, I, I urge a lot of people all the time to run for office. <laughs> it doesn't have to be state senate. It could be, you know, what 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 makes sense where they live. Um, and uh, and I I like want to be there to support people who who want to run. Yeah, it sounds like the moral of the story is kind of if you find yourself saying someone should run for this, that person is probably you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That that could be true as well. <laughs> yeah. I think we're ready for the last question. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, so stepping away from state senatorship, um, (laughs) at the DSA holiday party, um, Kelly and I were talking to Julia and she requested the astrology episode. Yes. Um, So we thought it was only fitting before we say goodbye for the astrology heads out there. Julia, what's your sign? Oh, I love this. Uh, (laughs) And I can't chart. Yeah, Yeah, sure. Well, I... First, like I, you know, I have the CoStar app. I, I yes. wish that I, um, you know, I'm not like, I'm not an expert. Some of my friends are just like, have this like incredible wealth of knowledge about astrology, but I do know, I do, I'm familiar with my chart at least. Um, my, I'm a Capricorn sun sign, the sign that most people are familiar with. I'm a Capricorn, um, a Gemini moon and an Aries rising. Oh, yes. Yeah. So Love analyze it. that. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That is very exciting. Yeah. Are, are you, Laura and Zoe, going to put that information into that star app that you use? I already ha- am friends with Julia on the CoStar app. Yes. Oh, I love that. <laughs> That's so cute. That's going to become cute. a requirement for running for office is like... Make your co- make your co-star public. Yes, it, it should be a litmus test. Amazing. <laughs> yeah, Julia's made a lot of promises, but she refuses to share her co-star. <laughs> Can we trust her? What is she hiding? What is she hiding? <laughs> <laughs> it's an excellent local local news radio voice. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that was really good. I can't wait to the do like, some yeah. investigation what's the word what? I'm trying to say? Investigatory <laughs> journalism? Investigate, investigative? Investigative? I don't know, but just make really suspicious comments about people. I think that's my calling. I love it. Great. By the way, since I wasn't on the astrology episode, I do want to share that I'm a double Libra. Ooh. I'm a Libra sun and a Libra moon. Helen and I both yeah. also have Libra moons. We have a lot of Libra moons. Amazing. And I think I'm an Aries rising too, but I can't remember if the Aries is somewhere else. Aries in the house. Um, Julia, (laughs) is there anything that you all say you want to say before we wrap up? Nothing I can think of other than uh, (laughs) I I really, honestly, I'm, I'm honored to have been able to join the podcast. um, And, Ah. and, uh, you know, finally, um, (laughs) I listen to, I listen to podcasts now, um, because I don't have a, I don't have a regular commute. Um, I commute to Albany on, I always take the train. I take the Amtrak, um, back and forth to Brooklyn. Uh, but I, you know, I don't have my like 45 minute work commute or whatever anymore on the train, which is when I used to listen to podcasts. Um, so now I listen to them in the shower. Um, so, so (laughs) I, I don't know if that's normal, but I'm, you know, it's like 
this is my getting ready time. Um, and so I'll be, I'll be continuing to listen to you all. Oh when my I'm God. Yeah. <laughs> well, we are just so yeah. honored and we will continue to support uh, your race. I wish that I had the wherewithal to run and then I could run for, from Buffalo and just be there with you. <laughs> but oh, I yeah. could not, I could not, I could not ever, but I, we are so grateful to have the opportunity to talk to you and, um, we're just really looking forward to all the things that you're doing from, from here on out. Thank you so much. Well, that was freaking amazing, and we're still freaking out. Uh, wow. I don't know. No words. No words. Julia Salazar listens to us while she takes showers. <laughs> I've, I've realized from, like, being at meetings since she's been elected that I am, like, the Bernie bro of Julia. Like, Perfect. When, if people are, like, being critical, I'm just like, no, no, you don't understand. Like, you don't you don't know her. You don't know her <laughs> like Julia I do. Says- yeah. Yeah, I am. Salazar sis over here. Yes. Um, <laughs> so as always, you can uh, find us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook at Season of the Bee. You can send us an email, seasonofthebee at gmail.com. We have merch on our website, seasonofthebee.com. Um, we also like take money on Patreon and we have a specific thing going on right now, um, which we're calling Season of the Stoner. So if we get 100 new patrons um, and we, I think at the last time I looked, have six new. So 94 to go. Um, It's only been like two days. That's good. Yeah. Thank you, everyone who has. Thank you to those six people. Thank you to those six people who really want. So here's the thing. If you um, sign up for $4.20 or more per month um, by March 31st, we will do a, a 420 episode while extraordinarily baked. Um, Talking all about weed, all all the weed facts you need to know. All the weed and facts you need to know and never knew that you needed to know. And also just being really silly. And it will be a Patreon exclusive content. So, um, yeah, if you have kind of been waiting, maybe now is the time to jump in on that if you want to hear us get really silly. Yeah. And there will be other exclusive things coming, but so you'll also be, you'll be there for all future opportunities as well. But this is our, our current little campaign. Hell yeah. And I think that's all. I love you guys. Love you. Love you. Bye. Bye. Bitch.